It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? Good morning. Uh, always good to be here. The uh, you know wheels of justice just never stop turning. Indeed. So what's new this week? Uh, well, the first case I wanted to talk about uh, is a very interesting uh, appeal uh, from a sentence for manslaughter uh, for a woman in Alberta. Uh, and the background of the case involves uh, a woman who's a grandmother of eight, uh, who survived uh, three decades of abuse at the hands of her husband. Uh, and uh, it was common ground uh, that the uh, abuse that she suffered was severe, uh, being uh, threatened uh, with a gun on occasion, uh, uh, being uh, threatened uh, that uh, she would be killed if she tried to leave her husband, uh, uh, all manner of terrible abuse that went on for many years. Uh, and eventually, after having suffered through that for nearly uh, three decades, um, she shot and killed her husband while he was asleep. Um, and she and one of her um, then uh, young adult uh, children uh, took his body uh, and disposed of it and reported him missing. Um, after about six years, uh, what uh, happened uh, came out and she was charged with um, first degree murder. Um, and uh, in Canada, of course, um, if somebody is convicted of first-degree murder, uh, the penalty is necessarily life in prison uh, with uh, no prospect of parole for 25 years. And that minimum penalty of life in prison and no parole eligibility for that period of time came in in 1976 when we did away with the death penalty. And it was sort of the quid pro quo. We'll get rid of the death penalty, but we'll insert this mandatory minimum penalty. Uh, and, of course, when you do that, uh, you don't necessarily have in mind uh, the severely abused woman uh, who eventually uh, uh, kills somebody, right? Yes. Um, and so what happened, here's the plot thickens, mm -hmm. um, there can be a defense of referring to as battered woman syndrome and how that can uh, attach to the concept of self-defense. Yes. But it's far from certain whether that would... Uh, carry the day uh, in a jury trial, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in this case from Alberta, uh, her lawyer at the time uh, was able to persuade Crown Counsel to accept a guilty plea to the offense of manslaughter rather than murder. But the uh, condition of the guilty plea was that both the Crown and the defense would agree to ask the judge to impose an 18-year prison sentence on this woman. And so that is what occurred. And as we've talked about previously, when there is a joint submission for a judge to consider, the judge is required to impose what's being asked for by both lawyers, unless the judge concludes that doing so would bring the administration of justice into disrepute, a very high threshold. And the reason that threshold is so high to depart from a joint submission is that otherwise cases may well just not resolve, right? If you could have yes. no certainty about what had been agreed to. Now, and then the other reason for it, of course, is that, uh, or not of course, but the other reason for it is that judges doing sentencings may not be aware of all of the things that might have gone into the agreement. They would be presented with some of the information, but they may not know everything. And here, the Crown presented this as a near murder, right? Yes. And uh, uh, and uh, also, I think, made reference to the fact she tried to cover up what occurred and succeeded in that for a number of years. Now, what's happened 
um, is that uh, the public, of course, found out about what happened here. There were editorials written in the paper in Alberta, uh, and there was some quite strong public reaction against the sentence that was imposed on the grandmother of eight. People thinking this was excessive, it shouldn't have happened, uh, she had been abused, this is much uh, too much. Um, and that's produced a online petition. Now that some, I think, almost 24,000 people have signed being opposed to the sentence that uh, she received. And that has now resulted uh, in an appeal to the Alberta Court of Appeal, which was just heard. And one of the interesting submissions that the lawyer, a different lawyer from the one that was helping this woman at uh, trial when she was charged with first-degree murder and who agreed to the uh, manslaughter plea, one of the arguments that her lawyer is making uh, is the argument that to the Court of Appeal, look, the, the test for whether a joint submission should be agreed to is whether it would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. And if you play that out, it's actually in the mind of a reasonable person, fully informed of all of the circumstances of the case, not somebody who's half informed or, you know, uh, on the margins. And so the lawyer's argument is, well, look, Unlike in many cases, you've got you, Court of Appeal, have some direct evidence about how this sentence has impacted the uh, view of the justice system in Alberta. Because look, here's a petition of some 24,000 people that say that the 18-year prison sentence handed to this woman was really excessive. And so it's a very interesting fact pattern for the Court of Appeal to consider because they are dealing with First of all, all of the considerations that might go into uh, uh, a case where the uh, Crown agrees to accept a plea to a lesser offence, but in exchange for an agreement for a substantial sentence. And how should that be reconciled um, with uh, the general principles that would apply um, to considerations of whether to impose a sentence being asked for where it's a joint submission? Um, and one of the other things which has been uh, called for uh, is the idea that, particularly in cases like um, this one, uh, where you've got a uh, abused uh, woman who's charged with uh, murder, um, is that it is perhaps too coercive to tell somebody, look, we're charging you with first-degree murder. If you're convicted, you must receive a life sentence. You may have a defense to that, for example, self-defense in the context of uh, battered woman syndrome uh, might apply here. Mm. But if you don't succeed in that, you're going to prison for life. And so that can create a perhaps overwhelming uh, pressure on somebody to agree to plead guilty to something like manslaughter, even if the result would be a very long sentence. Thinking, well, I just can't risk life in prison. Uh, you know, I guess I'll have to take that. And so one of the things which has been um, suggested, at least publicly in the context of this case, is that uh, particularly in fact patterns like this, if the Crown is prepared to accept a, a guilty plea to manslaughter, they should not be charging the person with murder and then using that as leverage to get the person to agree to plead guilty to something like manslaughter. If the Crown thinks that manslaughter is the appropriate uh, uh, charge in a case like this, they should simply charge the person with manslaughter. Uh, and then uh, if the person wishes to have a, a trial so that a, a jury could decide, for example, whether 
battered woman syndrome was applicable uh, in the circumstances of her case, they could make that decision. And so that the accused person uh, wouldn't feel uh, that uh, if it is not, uh, the judge would have no alternative uh, but to send them to prison for life. And so the case raises all of these very interesting issues in terms of, you know, how do we deal with people who are seriously abused and then uh, respond in that uh, fashion? Uh, Should they be treated uh, in some uh, different way uh, than we would uh, treat somebody uh, who committed a murder uh, for some other reason? Um, Or uh, should there be uh, some consideration given to uh, whether there should be greater discretion uh, in cases where somebody was convicted of murder even. Yes. Um, how should we approach it? Uh, because it would appear that at least a, a fair chunk of the public uh, view of this would be it's just not fair at the end of the day to have somebody who survives three decades of abuse and then acts in this fashion to be sentenced to either life in prison or indeed 18 years in prison. Something may well be appropriate, but is this appropriate? Um, And so it will be interesting to watch both how the Alberta Court of Appeal deals with it uh, in terms of the legal issues, uh, and then whether it has any effect on uh, how future prosecutions in cases like this proceed. Do you charge the person with first-degree murder and then say, look, if you'll agree to manslaughter, you must agree to a substantial sentence? Uh, Or should some other approach uh, be taken? Uh, Because uh, clearly... um, you know, circumstances like this, uh, in my view at least, ought to be uh, taken into account when deciding what is appropriate. And this case and cases like it um, are perhaps in a similar category to the other one of the other well-known Canadian cases of Latimer, uh, that uh, farmer who was convicted yeah, of Robert Latimer, uh, yeah. killing his yeah, yeah killing his severely disabled uh, daughter who was in constant uh, and unremitting pain. Yes, you know, should the the life sentence for murder, is that the appropriate sentence for the abused woman or for the uh, person who's engaged in a uh, sort of a mercy killing, if it's described in that way, right? Does that person need to be in prison for the rest of their life? Um, or should there be some uh, flexibility in terms of determining what the appropriate sentence would be? And so it'll be very interesting to see what the Court of Appeal does with this, because indeed, as the lawyer's arguing, there is some actual um evidence before the Court of Appeal of what the public thinks of this sentence uh, and whether uh, indeed this would bring the administration of justice into disrepute and whether in those circumstances a judge deciding the sentence uh, should have interfered with it or whether they should have taken the usual approach, which would be to uh, impose the sentence that was being asked for. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll take a quick break. Legally Speaking continues right after this. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070, legally speaking, with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, thank you for walking us through that. A very complicated area of law and indeed a very complicated area of just human life with people having to exist in situations like that, being in awful scenarios. What's next on the agenda? Well, next on the agenda is what happened after Julia, Julie Payette, the Governor General, resigned? Who's yes. in charge? <laughs> Uh, and uh, she, of course, resigned uh, on January 21st of this year, uh, and we don't have a new governor general. So uh, who's running the show? Um, and the answer to that is the chief justice of the uh, Supreme Court of uh, Canada, Justice Wagner, uh, is now and has uh, since uh, two days after the resignation uh, been filling in uh, 
uh, on behalf of the uh, Queen as the administrator. Uh, and the authority to that is interesting. It comes from the letters patent from King George the Sixth, the 1947. It said, so what happens when the governor general is unable to fulfill the role or there isn't one, or indeed if the governor general is out of the country for more than 30 days, um, there's then a procedure as to well, who takes over. Um, we don't, of course, uh, in a parliamentary democracy, have some line of succession for the prime minister, right? If the prime minister became, resigned, um, there would be a determination as to who was going to take over that role, but it isn't set out uh, sort of as a line of succession like there would be in the United States, for example, with the president and vice president and so on down the line. But uh, we do have that uh, for the Queen's representative in Canada. And so we're, with uh, no governor general, it then falls to the uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. If the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada can't do it, you would then sort of go down the line to a senior judge of the Supreme Court of Canada. And so we always have somebody in place. Now, in that role, and I should say he's been doing both jobs since January, um, he'd be fulfilling a whole bunch of uh, tasks he's signed since then, just short of 600 uh, orders from cabinet. He's giving royal assent to legislation. I think a dozen pieces of legislation he's given royal assent to. Um, and of course, with a uh, potential uh, election looming, uh, he may wind up with some other interesting uh, responsibilities, including choosing the prime minister. What happens if we wind up with a minority uh, parliament again? So you could have the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada uh, determining who's going to get a chance to try to form government. Well, at also, least he would be familiar with the law. It's not like he'd have to receive much legal advice, or if he did, he'd certainly be able to interpret it, one would think. That's true, although think about this. He would also then be doing things like reading the speech from the throne, potentially then giving royal assent to bills that were passed. Hmm. And now let's imagine one of those uh, uh, bills winds up being challenged perhaps on constitutional grounds. Oh. Now he's going to kind of walk down the street, uh, and now you're <laughs> going to have the same guy that gave the speech from the throne saying we need to, I don't know, uh, allow everyone to be arrested without the right to counsel. He just read that out and then gave royal assent to the bill providing for that. Uh, and now he's going to walk down the street uh, and decide whether that, in fact, is constitutional or not. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I suppose you'd be stretching it a bit to make that argument, but it, it certainly... Uh, uh, could lead to a, an awkward circumstance if you've got the uh, Chief Justice reading out a speech from the throne calling for something, then giving assent to the legislation, and then uh, potentially deciding whether the legislation is constitutional or not, or interpreting what it means. Um, uh, and so we have an interesting state of affairs and uh, a busy uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada who's got a lot going on anyways. Um, and so... Um, and we may, of course, have an interesting time if there is indeed an election called. So uh, perhaps it would be uh, uh, time to give some consideration to getting somebody in to uh, take over as uh, governor general. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we can find somebody who can treat people nicely. It doesn't seem like uh, too difficult or too high of a bar. Um, but uh, that's the circumstance we're in. Um, and I should also add, um, there's a similar procedure if a lieutenant governor can't uh, act, the governor general, or now in fact the administrator, uh, has the authority to appoint somebody as a provincial administrator. And so if, for example, the lieutenant governor in BC couldn't carry on for some reason, 
Uh, right now, Justice Wagner, Chief Justice Wagner, could appoint a, a administrator in British Columbia to fulfill the roles there. Um, one thing he might consider doing, if he hasn't already, um, is that the letters patent also permit him, uh, the administrator, to appoint a deputy to help. And so maybe that would avoid um, some of the uh, potential awkwardness of doing things like reading a speech from the throne. Um, you could appoint somebody as a, a deputy who wouldn't then be the chief justice potentially hearing a case involving things spoken about in the speech from the throne. And so there could be some workarounds, but uh, I guess the uh, thing to know for everyone is we've got an empty position and we've got a very busy chief justice and uh, perhaps it would be a wise idea to uh, get that role filled uh, before he's left with making some uh, potentially significant uh, decisions. And while Canada's justice system is not perfect because no system is perfect, Michael, it may also be a benefit from time to time to cast our gaze elsewhere in the world and compare our system to other systems in terms of fairness. That's for sure. All right, I, I've been uh, watching uh, with interest what's been going on uh, in Hong Kong yes. um, since the uh, Communist Party of China uh, passed the uh, legislation there dealing with national security, this sort of vaguely worded uh, law uh, in as they sort of subsume uh, Hong Kong, right? Yes. And the reason that's interesting to watch from the perspective of you know somebody else from a Commonwealth country where Hong Kong had many of the uh, similar elements to our justice system here, right? It, it did have previously an independent judiciary, right? They had things like uh, jury trials. Uh, uh, they had things which you would very much recognize uh, as a uh, Canadian, um, looking at how the justice system there previously functioned. Uh, and so uh, it is, uh, I must say, very disappointing uh, to watch how that is being simply dissolved uh, as it's been subsumed by um, the Communist Party in China. Uh, and we're seeing that now in the form of uh, one of the first uh, trials that's going to occur uh, under that uh, Chinese national security law. Um, and uh, some of the things, uh, it, so the, the trial that's about to start involves a man who was uh, riding a motorcycle with a flag calling for Hong Kong's liberation on the flag, basically. Right uh, now, yes. he's also, I think, driving the motorcycle poorly, but he's charged with uh, under this um, national security law as a result of having the flag. And that means a few things. Uh, and they would include things like um, under that law, the government there gets to pick which judges are allowed to hear the case. That's awfully disturbing. Yeah, that's that's, uh, that's very, very disturbing. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's the mark of distinction one would want as a judge being handpicked by the government to hear the case. I was going to say, uh, even if one finds oneself to be fair and impartial, if you're always the one that gets picked on people you know are political adversaries of the government, one might uh, re-examine one's own facilities for finding fair judgments. So that's one thing they did. The other thing they've done under this legislation um, is that you are denied bail. You stay in jail. Like the motorcycle rider has been in jail now for about a year. Wow. Unless you can establish uh, to the satisfaction of one of these hand-picked government judges that you will not endanger national security by, for example, displaying a pro-democracy flag. Mm -hmm. uh, and so 
the uh, unlike in Canada, right? You've got a right to not be denied uh, bail without a just cause, right? And yes, that's the presumption. Uh, that's been taken away. Uh, another thing which they've uh, done is they've uh, allowed the prosecutor to determine uh, that uh, the man cannot have a trial by jury. Uh, the reason for that, a stated reason, was it was to protect the personal safety of the jurors and their relatives, and to safeguard the administration of justice. On the argument, I guess, that he was very dangerous with the flag or that he drove his bike in an unsafe fashion. But prosecutor there can just tell you, no jury trial for you. Uh, And so he will have a trial with the uh, hand-picked government uh, judges. Uh, And then the other thing they've done is that um, for these offenses, they've charged him under this uh, um, national security law uh, with uh, sedition and terrorism for riding with the flag on his motorcycle. Uh, and if he is convicted of that, um, he will be subject to uh, potentially life in prison uh, and a sentence determined by the hand-picked government judges. And so I suppose with all of the challenges we have in this country, right, and it's a complex uh, place and time in which we live, um, one of the things I think we can be duly proud of here, if you're looking for a positive thing to be considering on Canada Day, is when you look at the contrast to how uh, justice systems in the rest of the world operate in comparison to what we enjoy here in Canada, it just could be, it could not be more stark. Um, And so we, I think with all of the challenges we have, which you've been talking about, um, this is one of the things which uh, is uh, at the uh, bedrock of our country and we should be very proud to have the system of justice that we do in Canada. It is in the world scheme of things superb. Uh, and even in places which previously have enjoyed a system not too far off from what we've got here, you can see in Hong Kong just how quickly uh, that can all be gone. Um, uh, and it is uh, really sad to watch what's happened there. And I must say, if you were somebody in Taiwan, uh, having a look at what's been going on in Hong Kong, yeah. uh, you would have some real cause to be concerned uh, because it's pretty clear uh, how the uh, uh, Communist Party in China uh, is prepared to conduct itself in order to preserve its uh, you know, national security. So be careful with your flags if you're in Hong Kong. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Always enjoy these chats, legally speaking, every Thursday on CFAX. Thanks so much for your time. Until next week. Thanks so much. Enjoy the sunny weather. Always uh, always a pleasure.